according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Am I booming more than usual this morning? Okay. There we go. Thank you, son. I think Warren was booming a little bit louder than usual Sunday night. And I believe what ended up happening was uh, with our guest speaker Sunday morning, uh, Ralph LaRosa may not have been as loud as Warren and myself. And so uh, the volume level, I think, got adjusted a little bit for that 1045 service Sunday morning. All right, well, we'll bring it back down then to Bob and Warren levels. Good. All right, turn the Word of God to Luke chapter 1 this morning. I really do want to gain new ground, and we will do so today, um, into the Song of Elizabeth and Mary, which is verses 39 through uh, 45, and then the song, uh, Mary's Song of Praise, which is verses 46 through 56. But as we ran out of time last week, we left off with what I thought was a very important concept and uh, gave you a lot of scriptures to look at and uh, some things to do on your own in terms of homework. But I want to return to that just now at the beginning of this session. And so let's do so, though, after a word of prayer. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We ask now for teachability. We ask now, Father, that you would humble each one of us before the authority of your scriptures. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the very end of this section, which is the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary, Luke 1, verses 26 through 38, we, uh, our main point six, gave you a breakdown in the exegesis of Luke 1.35, related over to a couple of passages in Matthew. And uh, then under point seven, we got into the necessity of the virgin birth. And... No. There we go. Ah, slide number 20 in our outline. All right. The necessity of the virgin birth. And under this, there are five main areas of what we're looking at. And I think as we're running out of time, we probably only discussed the first two or so, maybe even just the first one with any length. Um, but we listed them for you as A, B, C, D, and E. The first one of which was to preserve the Davidic line and yet fulfill the curse of Jeconiah. The virgin birth is essential in order to, to fulfill the Davidic line, preserve the Davidic line, and yet fulfill the curse of Jeconiah. This is one of those seemingly contradictions from the Old Testament. Because if all we had was human reasoning, we would say, well, they, they both can't be true. Because the, the line of David has got to be preserved, and yet God put a curse on Jeconiah that said no descendant of yours would sit on the throne. And you and I, with human viewpoint and human reasoning, would look at that and say, well, those are uh, contradictory statements, or mutually exclusive. They can't both be true, given that Jeconiah is in that line of David, in the not just any line of David, but the, the legal line of inheritance. In other words, the line that proceeded from David to Solomon to Rehoboam on down through the kings of Judah. And so that is the line of succession, as it were. Any other line other than the line through Solomon, through Rehoboam, and so forth, that legal line of succession, then is not the legal line of the Davidic throne. And so the Christ has to be born of that legal line. We could say the Christ has to be a legal heir of Jeconiah. Because Jeconiah is that line of succession all the way from David. But at the same time, with the curse of Jeconiah, according to Jeremiah 22.30, a son of Jeconiah cannot be on the throne. And so, the way that these seemingly contradictory concepts are fulfilled is by means of the virgin birth. Is by means of Jesus Christ, who is the legal son of Jeconiah, but not the literal son of Jeconiah because of the virgin birth and the process involved there. Um, and that's just one of the reasons why the virgin birth is necessary. The second reason why the virgin birth would be necessary is to give birth to mighty God. Uh, 
one of the titles for the Christ himself, according to Isaiah 9, 6, that he shall be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. And um, how, do, how are you going to give birth to mighty God if his dad is the unmighty human being, you know, Joseph of Nazareth? <laughs> Joseph of Nazareth is not going to produce mighty God. See? And uh, so we have the concept there. It's also uh, related elsewhere in John 1, verses 34 and 49, where the deity of Christ is testified to, along with Psalm 2, verses 7 and 12. And I don't think, did I take you to Psalm 2 last week? I don't believe so. Let's go to Psalm 2 and take a look at it. Some people think that the, the hang-ups the Pharisees had with Christ's claims of deity were off, off base. But in reality, a fair reading of the Psalms gives the full evidence that the coming Messiah was going to be God himself. In Psalm 2.7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So with reference to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, who's going to reign over not only Israel, but all the uh, ends of the earth, um, you realize here in the context of this, uh, verse 6 says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is the coming king, the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. So the idea of sonship uh, was grounded in the Old Testament uh, Messianic prophecies. Today I have begotten you. Not just an adopted son, but an actual begotten son. Verse 8, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. There's a distinction between ruling over Israel and then ruling over the ends of the earth. Verse 9, You shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. We've studied that in the past in our millennial studies. The difficulties that the millennial reign will present and the enforced discipline that will be required because of those rebellious Gentile nations. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and that you perish in the way. Now, we have a parallelism here in the Hebrew where we are worshiping the Lord. Point of fact, that is with reference to God the Father. We have a, a um, relationship here between the Father and the Son throughout this passage. Do homage to the Son. We are showing the equivalency of the Father and the Son between verses 11 and 12, both of which are entitled to worship and to homage, which is another way of expressing worship. This is classic Hebrew parallelism where we have these, uh, the pairing of these phrases. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. Not only is the Christ going to be the Son of God, but He is in fact God Himself. Absolute deity, worthy of worship. No angel is worthy of worship. No human king is worthy of worship. In fact, we're prohibited from worshiping angels or human kings. But this king, who is a son, who is God himself, is commanded to be worshipped. And uh, failure to do so actually prompts wrath and divine discipline, according to the last part there of verse 12. So in order to give birth to mighty God... Virgin birth then becomes necessary. All right, the third reason for the necessity of the virgin birth, point C, to give birth to true humanity. To give birth to true humanity. It's not just God entering into this world. He could have entered into this world any old way, and He did many times in the Old Testament. He entered into this world through the burning bush. He entered into this world through uh, the uh, pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He entered into this world as the angel of the Lord numerous times. Uh, an actual Christophany, an appearance of God the Son, an appearance of, of Christ uh, into this world happened with some regularity in the Old Testament, but not in terms of the incarnation of His human nature. That was necessitated by the virgin birth. 
So to give birth to true humanity that is in a body that thou hast prepared for me, a human body as well as true human nature. John 1, 4 says the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Get a mind to become something it was not previously and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That's John 1, 14. Romans 1, 3. Hebrews 2, 11, 14, and 17. 1 John 4, 2. 2 John 7. This is a fundamental issue of the Christian faith. Some of the early controversies within the early church focused upon the nature of Christ and either attacked his true de- uh, deity or his true humanity, one side or the other. We, of course, understand that both are equally true. He is undiminished deity and yet true humanity, united together in one person forever. Alright, John 1.14 again, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Romans 1.3 The Gospel of God which He promised beforehand through His prophets and the Holy Scriptures, that would be the Old Testament, concerning His Son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Again, He must be true humanity. He couldn't just enter into this world and miraculously create uh, a human body and then infest that body, uh, you know, possess that body in some means. He had to be born of a descendant of David because those were promises that were made to David. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11, 14, and 17. How he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Not only would he be born into a human body, but he would experience the full breadth of human experience, thereby becoming our true substitute and intercessor. Verse 9 says, We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, right, proper, necessary, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing the sons of, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and he, and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. True humanity, otherwise we're not his brethren. Verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. If he was not the true intercessor, if he was not, if he did not truly identify with us, then the Father would not have been satisfied with his death on the cross. The Father would be satisfied with none less. Remember, identification is so vital. The, uh, when, when the Old Testament, uh, worshiper brought the, the sheep and laid his hands on their head to identify with that sacrifice, and then that sacrifice was slaughtered in their place, the, the, uh, issue there was, was identification. And I hope we can understand that. The nature of Antichrist and the false message of Antichrist is revealed in 1 John 4.2 and 2 John 7. Any, any attack upon the deity or humanity of Christ then uh, is a denial of the truth of God's Word. 1 John 4.2 By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words... Come in the flesh means we, we identify His true deity, that He was pre-existent deity, God the Son, for all eternity, and that He then came in the flesh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we testify to His true deity, His true humanity, the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Anything other than that is Antichrist. The Jehovah's Witness view of, of God the Son or Jesus Christ is Antichrist. The Mormon view of God the Son is Antichrist. All these cults and their view of God the Son and, and, and Jesus as the Christ are antichrist because they fail to uh, testify accurately to what the Bible records as the 
preexistent deity of God the Son, the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the flesh with, with true humanity. 2 John 7 is the last of these. 2 John verse 7, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. See, rather than get all worked up about whoever the Antichrist is going to be, you know, the big number one absolute capital A Antichrist and who he's going to be in the tribulation, I don't get worked up about that because, you know, to be blunt, we're not going to be here anyway, so who cares? We're going to be raptured or we're going to be gone. The real battle we face are the many Antichrists that have already gone out into the world, to the spirit of Antichrist that's already at work, to the, uh, the mystery of Antichrist which is at work in deceiving the saints. The fourth reason why the virgin birth is necessary, for his sinless perfection. For his sinless perfection. If he would have had a human father, then the sins of the father would have been passed along. He would have had a sin nature. And having a sin nature, he would have not have been qualified to be the lamb spotless and blameless. A lamb that would have uh, offered a satisfactory sacrifice to God the Father. If he would have had a human father, he would not have been sinless perfect and he himself would have needed a savior. For his sinless perfection, 2 Corinthians 5.21 Him who knew no sin. He made Him who knew no sin to be, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Him who knew no sin. He had to have born, been born sinless and perfect without an inherited sin nature which is passed through the Father. We've studied many times the sins of the Father. 1 Peter 1.19 we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished, the spotless blood of Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. In 1 John 3, 5. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. Singular. Keep in mind, in, in 1 John, when you have sins plural, we're talking about the personal sins. But when we talk sin singular, we're dealing with the sin nature. And He has none whatsoever. And the fifth reason why, to give birth to the last Adam. To give birth to the last Adam. Adam and Jesus Christ are unique in that Adam was created without a sin nature. Jesus Christ was born without a sin nature. And the relationship between Adam and Jesus is spelled out uh, primarily in Romans 5.14 and 1 Corinthians 15.45. Two important theological passages that I hope we're familiar with. Romans 5.14 Verse 12 says, Just as through one man sin entered into the cosmos and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned keep that in mind death spread to all men because all sinned you and i sinned when adam partook of that fruit and he disobeyed because you and i were in the loins of adam the entire human race sinned when adam sinned verse 14 nevertheless death reigned from adam until moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of adam who is a type of him who was to come. The typology there becomes very important. And then, of course, the, uh, the contrast. Verse 17, If by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. I think the parallelism is brought out best in 1 Corinthians 15.45. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What a contrast. All right. 
Five reasons why the virgin birth was necessary. We were running out of time last week and didn't have a chance to go through those scriptures together or to uh, spend some time in it, make any kind of comment on it. And I wanted to, uh, to do so here this morning. All right, gaining some new ground now. Moving on ahead to the Song of Elizabeth. The Song of Elizabeth to Mary in Luke 1, 39-45. Let's get a look at that section and then the Magnificat, the Song of Mary in the section that follows. So turning back now to Luke chapter 1. All right, so far in Luke chapter 1, the uh, angel has appeared to Zacharias and given him the good news about the uh, pending birth of John the Baptist. And then... uh, and John's father, Zacharias, responded with a lack of faith, and so he was placed under divine discipline until the child would then be born. The angel then goes and speaks to Mary, gives the announcement to Mary. Mary responds with faith, is not under divine discipline, but blessed because of that faith. And then the angel departs. With the angel departing, Mary packs her bags and goes off to see her kinsman. And this is where we pick up our reading now in verse 39. Verse 38 says, Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Verse 39, At this time Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah. She immediately wants to run off. Not because she's doubting, not because she thinks the promises aren't going to happen, but because she's excited to see how these things are all going to unfold. She's excited to see how the Father is going to uh, make good on the promises that He has uttered. And entered into the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. We realize Mary didn't go run into Elizabeth because she was doubting, because she was skeptical, because she really wanted to see if it was true or not. She knew it was true, and then she came to celebrate with her cousin the uh, wonderful events. You'll notice down in verse 56, Mary stayed with her about three months. In other words, she stays through the delivery. She stays through the birth of John the Baptist. That was her intent before she left uh, Nazareth, was that she made the arrangements to leave and to travel and to go to Hebron or whatever city this was. We assume it was likely Hebron or one of those other Levitical cities that belonged to uh, the in the hill country of Judah here. We don't know specifically which one. Um, but whatever the case is, she had to make plans to travel that distance and stay that length of time and travel back. Not necessarily an easy thing to do in the ancient world. And the more I study on uh, the nature of geography and traveling and all the rest, it's it's quite extraordinary. It's not like today where you can just, you know, throw a bag in your trunk and jump in your car and decide, well, I want to take off for two or three days. I want to take off for a length of time. Okay. Let's make some observations with respect to this. It really is uh, an interesting section. It it does show um, some interesting understanding on Elizabeth's part here of Christology and of uh, grace and the privilege to not only fulfill a work assignment, but fulfill a number of different work assignments at the same time. All right, four observations here in this text. Point one, Mary was a Galilean from Nazareth, but her kinsmen, Zacharias and Elizabeth, lived in the hill country of Judah. Mary was a Galilean from Nazareth, but her kinsmen, Zacharias and Elizabeth, lived in the hill country of Judah. We have verse 39. If you want, you can compare verse 26 to verse 39, and you see the geographical references there. The city in Galilee called Nazareth to the virgin. That's verses 26 and 27. And then the hill country of Judah is verse 39. And yet they are kinsmen. We don't know the specific relation, but it is mentioned there when the angel gives the uh, further evidence uh, that even her uh, kinsman, Elizabeth, in verse 36, 
Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. She who was called barren. In other words, that's her nickname. That's what she's known by. We don't know how old Zacharias and Elizabeth were, but old enough that it was well known throughout all the family, throughout all the extended family, that that's Elizabeth the barren. Okay? Now, we're probably too polite in our society to maybe assign such nicknames to people. (laughs) But in their culture and society, that would not necessarily be the case. And it wouldn't necessarily be insulting. It's just simply an objective statement of fact. That she is Elizabeth the Baron. And it's a mark of sorrow for her, but it's not insulting. It's just an observation of fact. Likewise, Mary the Virgin would be a statement of fact. And, and something well known and something well, there's no secret, there's no, uh, it's all a matter of public record. And, and Mary's parents have contracted the marriage agreement with Joseph's parents on the basis of her virginity. And that was, um, we're, our culture is much more private, I think, about those kind of things. This culture was wide open about that. Uh, aspect the the virginity of the daughters of Israel was so important, and it was a matter for the the family, the clan, the tribe. And as I stated, when Mary's father was arranging the marital contract with Joseph's father, um, her virginity was very much a stated part of that contract and very much a part of the exchanged uh, uh, bride's uh, price and dowry and so forth. Had she not been a virgin, then. Um, it's a whole different contract, <laughs> all right? Much lesser contract for her father, obviously. Uh, she probably wouldn't get full wife status. She may end up as a concubine rather than a full wife and under the different things there. We've tried to give teaching on polygamy and concubines and uh, arranged marriages and a whole wealth of things in times past. And I think every time we go into it, we just don't do well, <laughs> You know, it's kind of like studying Mars or some foreign planet, you know, alien planet somewhere. It's just not part of our culture. All right, but as the as the geography is concerned, this is a considerable distance. This would be a journey uh, of five or six days if she made it quickly, uh, if she was a part of a traveling caravan or something for protection. Obviously, she just didn't, you know, load up a donkey and, and go by herself. But uh, traveled with family, perhaps, or traveled with a, a caravan of some sort for protection upon the upon the Roman roads. We uh, also understand that these are part of the the workings of divine sovereignty at work to fulfill certain things, such as the fact that the Christ has to be born in Bethlehem, that is, in the region of the hill country of Judah. At the same time, he has to be called a Galilean, uh, and uh, the issues there. And we, I think, we studied that already in terms of the uh, different geographical promises of the coming Christ. Secondly, I find a very interesting par- uh, procedure here. Point two. John the Brephos was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know him as John the Baptist. I'm calling him here John the Brephos. Was filled with the Holy Spirit first. Brephos is B-R-E-P-H-O-S. Or if you want to spell it out in the Greek, you can spell it out in the Greek. The Beta, Rho, Epsilon, Phi, Omicron, Sigma. Brephos. Beta, Rho, Epsilon, Phi, or Phi, Omicron, Sigma. B-R-E-P-H-O-S. John the Brephos. He was a Brephos. A baby. Okay? And the same term, Brephos, was used of a baby in the womb as a baby out of the womb. It's a Brephos. That is, someone who is being nourished. In the womb, of course, you're being nourished through the umbilical cord. Out of the womb, you're being nourished through breastfeeding. And Brephos is a motherly nourished one. The baby. And the term is used of babies in the womb or out of the womb. All right, John the Brephos was filled with the Holy Spirit first. We know that from Luke one fifteen, followed by Elizabeth, followed by Zacharias. It's an interesting order because it's backwards from everything we understand. We're accustomed to authority. We're accustomed to chain of command. We're accustomed to the father's the head of the home. And so we have a father, we have a mother, and then we have a baby. 
But the order of the filling of the Holy Spirit in this chapter is just the opposite. The breath falls first, then the mother, then the father. In really a remarkable way. Verse 15, he will be filled, he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will um, drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Right from the very beginning. From the point of conception, we would say. Now, he's not a believer. He doesn't get saved until he's old enough to understand salvation, until his parents can explain the coming Christ to him, and until he can place his faith in the coming Christ. But he is a spirit-filled unbeliever until that point of time. And then, he, I imagine, at a very young age, he gets saved. And is a spirit-filled believer from that point forward. Keep in mind, this is Old Testament spirituality where not everybody had the Holy Spirit. Very few people did. Almost nobody did. Other than uh, anointed prophets and certain other individuals where the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Here, to have a whole family spirit indwelled is extraordinary, to say the least. Then we have Elizabeth. As a consequence of the baby leaping, and that's, you moms know what this is, you know, the baby that kicks and jumps and rolls over and does all these things. Um, it's the same word that was used back in Genesis 25 when the twins, Esau and Jacob, were wrestling together in, in Rachel's womb, and they had such a fight going on in there. Rachel wanted to know, uh, or I'm sorry, Rebecca wanted to know uh, what's going on. <laughs> And then she gets the answer to prayer that says, uh, you have two babies and they're fighting in there and their nations that descend from them are going to fight for thousands of years. <laughs> All right. It's the same concept of, of wrestling, rolling, fighting, jumping, kicking, screaming. Um, this activity is going on in the womb. With John the Brephos, though, we're told that specifically it is instigated through the emotion of joy. That's verse 44. The baby leaped in my womb for joy. Divine joy communicated to the brephos who does not yet have the intellect or the mentality to comprehend what's happening, but his soul is able to understand the joy that the Holy Spirit communicates to him. There's all kinds of studies out there on the value of reading to your child and the value of speaking to your child and singing to your child and the, the nature of or the ability of the child in the womb to um, acknowledge outside stimulus and so forth. But we have this order. Now the mother is filled in verse 41 as a consequence of the baby leaping here. Or uh, not, maybe not necessarily a consequence, but certainly a uh, contemporary activity. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's what happens. Elizabeth's at home, about six months along. Her cousin comes in, Mary. She says hello. You know, we don't even know what the words of greeting were. <laughs> could have been hello. Could have been howdy. Could have been, you know, whatever. Shalom. All right. But she says some kind of greeting, whatever it is. And the baby immediately jumps. It's just her walking in and saying hi. Baby starts jumping. The Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth. Not only does the Holy Spirit come upon Elizabeth, but she is now given divine information, prophetic revelation as it were, that not only is she carrying the forerunner, but she is now looking at the mother of the Christ. Okay? Okay? And, and her words then relate this. Blessed are you among women. Now, Elizabeth herself is pretty blessed among women. <laughs> Elizabeth herself is very blessed. God has touched her life. He's blessed her with a child, not just a child, but with uh, a very important child, with the, the forerunner, with uh, the herald of the coming Christ, with a friend of the bridegroom. Elizabeth is a very blessed woman, however old she is. Remember, from Mary's perspective, she might just simply be in her 50s, <laughs> 60s. We don't know, okay? Old enough to be an old woman without a child. And uh, probably, my guess is, old enough that she's not going to see... Zacharias and Elizabeth aren't going to be alive anymore when the baptizer enters his ministry. When Jesus Christ comes to the Jordan and gets baptized, his life, his three years of ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, and Mary's, uh, Elizabeth's never going to see that. Zacharias isn't going to see that. They are old, advanced in years. 
And uh, they're not going to stick around for another 35 years for the birth of Christ and the baptism and the death and so forth. But Elizabeth is very blessed, and yet she understands that Mary is blessed as well. She says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. I'll talk about that here in a moment. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now keep in mind, Elizabeth is the one that's six months pregnant. Mary just got told about a conception, and she's if she's pregnant at this time, which I don't believe she is, I think she gets she the Holy Spirit conceives after this event. Um, but whether she is or not, you can debate that either way. She's not very pregnant at all. <laughs> okay, she's in the first couple days, or, or if it took her five days to get there, at most she's five days along. Okay, so divine revelation. I don't think she's even conceived yet at all. Um, I think that she will conceive. Um, after the event of this. When the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So we have the, the brephos, followed by Elizabeth, and then her comments here, Christological, focusing upon the coming of the Christ. And then Zacharias in verse 67. Now this is three months down the road. Three months down the road, uh, his Brephos son has been spirit-filled for about nine months now. <laughs> his wife has been spirit-filled for about three months now. And then the uh, restraint is taken off his mouth. He's allowed to speak. And then in verse 67, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, and then he has a song. There's a song of Elizabeth, a very short one, a song of Mary, a little bit longer called the Magnificat. We'll look at that. And then the song of Zacharias in verses 68 through 79, which is a very extraordinary uh, passage. The depth of doctrine and content in that song is remarkable. And we're going to spend some time on these first two songs first, which I think are also remarkable. But Zacharias' song, which, well, let me outline it for you here. Subpoint A. Because I think the order of this then teaches us a lesson. The fact that the brephos is filled first, and then the mother gets filled with a Christological understanding, and then with the father getting filled, and the, the depth of doctrine that he then communicates, I find a pattern in there for you and I to apply today. Alright, so sub-point A. As babes in Christ, in fact, 1 Peter 2.2 2 uses the same word, brephos. As babes in Christ, members of the church are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. By giving us a, a spirit-filled brephos, a spirit-filled mother with Christological understanding, and then a spirit-filled father with paterological understanding, I think what we're, we're seeing here in this event is something extraordinary that mirrors what you and I enjoy in the dispensation of the church. We enjoy the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Whether we just got saved today or whether we've been saved for 90 years, we have the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Just like John the Brephos, Elizabeth, and Zacharias enjoyed. A whole family, a whole family spirit-filled. That's unbelievable. I mean, you can count spirit-filled believers in the Old Testament on a couple of hands. There's not many of them. Alright? And now here's a whole family. Spirit-filled. Wherever they lived, in whatever town they lived in, can you imagine a whole family spirit-filled? And that's what we have in the church. An entire family. The family of God. The royal family of God in the church. An entire family spirit-filled. Starting with the babes, because we all start off as babes. As babes in Christ, members of the church are indwelled by God the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.2 2. And this is how we're able to learn the Word of God. We can hunger after the Word and we will learn the Word because the Spirit guides us in the truth. Like newborn babes, that's brephos, the same word that's used of John the brephos. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. So there's our first step. 
indwelled by the Holy Spirit from the moment of our salvation so we can start growing in the things of the Lord. So point B, we then grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, 2 Peter 3.18. We have, we increase in our Christology through growth, 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we go from our babe's status, from a babe in Christ, where we start learning just the basics of promises, we start learning the basics of confession, we start learning the basics, basics of the Christian way of life, we move on into adolescence and we start to learn our aspects of Christology, all of the truths of Jesus Christ, so that we can become more Christ-like. Alright? Intermediate Christology, I mean intermediate Christian way of life is when we start to learn these principles where we become more Christ-like. 2 Peter 3.18. And again, that's Spirit-filled. If you abandon the walk of the Spirit, if you decide to quench the Holy Spirit, grieve the Holy Spirit, resist the Holy Spirit, then you're not going to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You're going to be babes. And that's the problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which we've taught not too long ago. He said, I can't even talk to you as to spiritual men, but as to babes in Christ. Because you have all this carnality. You're not growing up. But then the, the pattern of the brephos, then the... Then Elizabeth the mother, and then Zacharias the father, and his in-depth message in that third song, point C, as mature men, we come to understand God the Father's grace eternal plan in the ages. We're not just becoming Christ-like, but as a part of becoming Christ-like, what was Christ doing? Christ was serving the Father. Christ was seeking the will of the Father. And so we go from being babes in Christ, just learning the basics, to becoming adolescent believers, developing the areas of Christology, to going to the mature man focused upon the paterology of the Father's will, the Father's good pleasure, the Father's purpose. We become true adult sons of the Father, fellow workers with the Father. Remember, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Apply that verse in salvation, sure, but also apply that verse in the Christian walk. Through a greater Christ-likeness, we can't help but become more Father-oriented, focused to the Father in advanced paterological studies. As mature men, we come to understand God the Father's grace, eternal plan of the ages. We start thinking with not just the mind of Christ, but the Father's thoughts, the Father's good pleasure, the fullness of the Father. And we will spend some time on Zacharias' song there in Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79, and how Zacharias was able to praise God for this vast eternal plan that included the sending of the forerunner, that included the rising of the Christ, that included the, the regathering of Israel, that included all of the uh, eternal covenant promises to Abraham. The big picture teachings of the, of the plans of God the Father are important for us to go into and... Uh, and we will. We will. And I'm, I'm very thankful that we have a, uh, a local church here that has those kinds of priorities to get the whole counsel of God's Word from Alpha to Omega and, and be willing to look at big picture. <laughs> I don't know if I could pastor a church that didn't want to look at big picture. You know what I'm saying? Uh, kind of a fluff church that just wants you know three points in a song or three points in a poem or three points in a joke and just make me walk out of here feeling happy about myself. I don't think I could pastor a church like that. It'd drive me nuts. We have believers that want big picture. They want the, to understand the will of the Father. They want to understand how angelic conflict works. They want to understand what the maximum glory of Jesus Christ is all about. So it's an interesting pattern where the brephos is filled, the mother is filled, the father is filled. It's totally backwards from what we might expect in a normal chain of command type of situation. Uh, and yet it shows us the pattern for our own Christian growth. Point uh, three now. Did you like that under point two, John the brephos? I thought that was kind of clever. John the brephos. He's not a Baptist yet. He's not even a baptizer yet. Not until his adult ministry. All right, so long years before he's John the Baptist, he's going to be, of course, John the Brephos. All right, point three. Mary's fellowship with Elizabeth. Mary's fellowship with Elizabeth. See, what's going to happen for three months now? 
two women, believers, are going to have true fellowship in the Word of God. Mary's fellowship with Elizabeth was centered in the revealed Word of God and provided mutual encouragement for their upcoming work assignments. Mary's fellowship with Elizabeth was centered in the revealed Word of God and provided mutual encouragement for their upcoming work assignments. For three months, living together, the older woman and the younger woman, both of which are pregnant, both of which are going to bear a child to fulfill a part of the plan of God. And they get to encourage one another. Repeating again, point three, Mary's fellowship with Elizabeth was centered in the revealed Word of God and provided mutual encouragement for their upcoming work assignments. Mary was able to encourage Elizabeth. I mean, you can imagine. <laughs> again, put yourself in Elizabeth's position. She's at home. She's doing whatever. Okay? Whatever wives are doing. Without kids, she's just at home. Zacharias has been gone for however long when he went to, to the temple to fulfill his responsibilities and his appointed order. Okay? And so he's fulfilling his responsibilities and his appointed order. And then he comes back out and he returns back home when his division is complete. And, uh, and uh, he walks in and he starts writing her notes because he can't talk. <laughs> you know? She, can't, she says, hi, honey, how was the trip to Jerusalem? How was your service in the temple? And he can't tell her. He can't say anything. Lost my voice. Starts writing her notes. An angel appeared to me and I didn't believe him. And now I'm under divine discipline. And oh, by the way, you're going to get pregnant. <laughs> All right. What's she going to say? Well, she has the evidence that her husband can't talk. So something must have happened. Okay. And then she gets pregnant. So something must have happened, okay? And now she's carrying this baby. Six months has gone by. She's gotten rather large. Pregnancy is not fun anyway at whatever age you are. I can imagine being pregnant at 70, okay? Or maybe I can't. <laughs> maybe you moms are all shaking your head. All right. Now, Sarah had a baby at 90, so I don't think Elizabeth probably beat that record. But in any event... And, but who's she going to talk to? Who's she going to talk to? You know, um, young moms that get pregnant, you know, they can talk to their moms or they can talk to other women or older women. Elizabeth can't find an older woman <laughs> pregnant than her. But now she has someone to fellowship with. Somebody else that is carrying a miracle baby. Somebody else that is um, that had an angel come and reveal something. Somebody else that has a frame of reference to uh, understand that the 400 silent years are over. It's been 400 years since Malachi, but now all of a sudden, God's doing something. And there's a real prophetess named Anna over there at the temple. And there's another uh, fellow, a prophet named Simeon, over there at the temple. And now, these two babies are getting born. God is doing something after 400 silent years. And uh, she has this opportunity for fellowship. Has an opportunity to um, go through the Scriptures together with this young woman. And Mary has an opportunity to go through the Scriptures together with Elizabeth. We don't know about Mary's mother or what kind of fellowship she might have had if she would have stayed in Nazareth and that kind of thing. What kind of, what kind of um, attitude her parents might have had given the virgin birth, you know, given the turning up pregnant. See, now, now the conception can occur in, in Hebron, and I believe the conception does occur in Judah for different reasons. Um, and she can conceive and she can have her first three months of pregnancy and so forth right here with Zacharias and Elizabeth and the fellowship that can then occur. Now, let's look at the message. 
under point four. The content of Elizabeth's song communicates several important principles. The actual content of her song communicates several important principles. Christological in nature, oriented to Christ, oriented to um, these issues. So point four, the content of Elizabeth's song communicates several important principles. First of all, sub-point A. Any blessings we possess are due to the blessings of Christ. Any blessings we possess are due to the blessings of Christ. Take Luke one forty two and relate it over to Ephesians one three to bring it into a church age application. Any blessings, that's eulogia in the Greek, number twenty one twenty nine. Any blessings, eulogia. Any blessings we possess are due to the blessings of Christ. What does Elizabeth sing when she says in Luke one forty two, Blessed are you among women because you're special? <laughs> Because you were born sinless yourself and your Holy Mother, Queen of Heaven? Why are you blessed among women? Because of the rest of verse 42. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. They're linked together, they're paired, and if it was not for that fruit of the womb, if it wasn't for the bearing of the Christ, then Mary would not have that unique blessing among women. And notice it's not more than women or above all women uh, in some kind of supreme role. It is among women. I mean, motherhood's a blessing anyway to any woman of any child. Motherhood is a blessing. But this child especially is the promised child that every mother since Eve has been looking for. <laughs> in the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. And so every childbirth, starting with Cain, and then Abel, and then all the other sons of Adam and Eve, and on down through the every childbirth for 4,000 years has been a blessing. The fruit of the womb is a reward. But now the one woman with the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head is uh, has now walked in and greeted Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, that's the greatest blessing I've ever observed. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Any blessings we possess are due to the blessings of Christ. They are inseparable. I have no blessings apart from Christ. The theology of this we can understand in Ephesians 1.3. Ephesians 1.3. I have no blessings apart from the blessings of Christ. Remember, all things are created by, uh, through Him, or by Him, and for Him. Everything is for Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because we deserved it. No. He didn't bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because we were special, because we deserved it, because of some credit we had. Blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. As a part of His grace, eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. As a part of exalting Jesus Christ to the maximum, God provides blessings for us. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He didn't choose us for salvation because we deserved it. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption. goes on to describe these things. But it's all grounded in our position in Him. We are blessed because we're in Him. He is the Beloved One. He is the Blessed One. Our blessings are tied to our relationship to Him. Apart from Him, we have no eulogetas, no eulogia, no blessings whatsoever. Apart from our position in Christ. Mary would not be blessed among women. She would just be another woman having another baby. It's been happening for 4,000 years. <laughs> but her blessings are related, correlated specifically to the fact that she was the one by grace selected to bring the seed of the woman into the world. To bring the humanity of Jesus Christ and his physical body into the world. 
So there's a principle. And, Mary, and Elizabeth's song relates that. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Understanding that orientation to Christ, the relationship to Christ, is the source of all blessings. Secondly, Elizabeth's song communicates that privileges and work assignment responsibilities are assigned by God on the basis of grace. Privileges and work assignment responsibilities are assigned by God on the basis of grace. Remember, privileges are work assignment responsibilities. It's one and the same. No such thing as a privilege without a responsibility. Privileges and work assignment responsibilities are assigned by God on the basis of grace. When she says, how is it? How has it happened to me? It acknowledges the grace of God in her life. It acknowledges that she didn't deserve to be the mother of the forerunner. She didn't deserve, and on top of that, she didn't deserve to have the mother of the Christ come to her. What a privilege. What a, uh, what a responsibility. What a work assignment that she has. Not just, I mean, Zacharias and Elizabeth already have a lot on their plate. Because they, in their old age, they have to give birth to this son and they have to rain, raise him, train him up in the word of God, equip him, prepare him for his prophetic ministry. They've got a lot of work to do. I think it's overwhelming for any parent to raise any child. <laughs> and you just go to prayer and say, Father, how am I going to do this? Just, you know... Training up a child in the way he should go? Bringing up a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? None of us qualify. <laughs> None of us are worthy to do that, so we go to Him for His empowerment, His strength, His wisdom, and say, Father, work in the life of this child. But now Zacharias and Elizabeth have to train up the forerunner, have to prepare him. And, and we don't know how long they have to do that. How long are they going to live to do that? But now, in addition to that work assignment, for these three months, Elizabeth has something else added to her plate. Because if you think it's an awesome responsibility to raise, to train up the forerunner, how about the responsibility to train up the Christ? To take baby Jesus from the manger and train him up in the Word of God. To, to teach him the, the Scriptures. To set the example for him. To, to bring him up in, in uh, favor both in the sight of man and God. Joseph and Mary have a lot on their plates. And now Elizabeth, for these three months, has an opportunity as an older woman to minister to Mary. As an older woman to disciple and to encourage and to come alongside and to, um, to make sure that Mary is grounded in doctrine. Because Mary better have, uh, better have her understanding of Scripture worked out because Mary's raising Jesus in His humanity. Might be stuff to ponder over the next week or so <laughs> until we come back and, uh, and deal with these. But you'll notice the uh, responsibilities increase. And uh, we'll come back to this outline next, uh, next Wednesday morning, Lord willing. We will wrap up the song of Elizabeth and Mary. We'll take a look at the Magnificat. We will take a look at the song of Mary in verses 46 through 55, which shows a tremendous amount of knowledge on her part, specifically in the Old Testament, in the Davidic hymns of the Psalms, in uh, the prophet Isaiah, a lot of Old Testament references in this hymn that shows that Mary had a, a pretty good grounding anyway at her young age with respect to the uh, prophetic scriptures. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. Thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to assemble together and receive instruction. And Father, I just do pray that each one of us here this morning, we see, we see parents raising children, and uh, and that's what we're doing, Father. We just walking on the basis of grace, keeping short accounts, staying spirit-filled, um, coming to that throne of grace and obtaining grace and finding mercy to help in time of need. And just thankful for the work assignment we have to train up a godly seed. 
and giving you the praise and the glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.